again everyone welcome again to Trinity Heights Church um, and uh, last week I was thanking everyone for uh, braving this time of Omicron and coming out since then several other friends have actually gone down with uh, Omicron this week I've heard of and uh, but thanks again for braving these times of Omicron coming out and thanks for braving the uh, sub-zero temperatures it's cold out there um, but uh, I have to say, I really do enjoy the walk over here. It made me really happy, trudging through the snow. That was beautiful. Uh, my favorite time of year. So um, we are carrying on in our series, which is the second part, uh, Mountain of Salt, City of Light, the second part in the study in the Sermon on the Mount. And the sermon begins with a striking set of phrases that are repeated uh, nine times a quick succession, and they all begin with this Greek word makarios, makarios, which is generally translated blessed. So it says blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, and, and so on and, and so forth. Of course, the trouble with translating this as blessed is that the English term blessed is so wrapped up with notions of obtaining divine favor and obtaining God's blessing that many people are going to come to this and, and read this and think, ah, so if I behave like this, then I will get that. It's a sort of very mechanistic reading, if you like, um, sort of very transactional. You put your coin in, press a button, the big cosmic vending machine in the sky, you get what you want. Um, and so is Jesus really teaching us how to manipulate God in order to get what we want, the desired result? Is that what's going on here? Well, actually, Jesus is not really talking about divine blessing or obtaining divine favor. What he's doing is he's giving us, throughout this sermon, actually, not just in this section, but throughout this sermon, he is giving us this vision for a way of being and moving in this world that will result in, in what we will want. And what do we want? We want to be happy. You want to be happy? I want to be happy. We all want to be, be happy. And so some translations will actually say, um, happy are those instead of blessed. It's not bad. Some will say, fortunate are those. How honorable are those. Congratulations to those. I like that. We'll, take a vote. we'll just take a vote and we'll, we'll use that one throughout this series. Uh, but actually, no, what we're, what we're going to do is we're going to go with this. Flourishing are those, or flourishing are you when. That may seem like a clunky translation, but I think it actually gets closest, along with happy are those, to, to the heart of what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is giving us a ins inspirational vision for human flourishing. 
That's what he's talking about. Um, he's talking about the idea that we could revel and delight in this day, and instead of fast-forwarding the precious moments of our lives to some other time and some other place, we can flourish right here and right now. And honestly, I, can't th I cannot think of a, a more pressing and more urgent message than this for our particular cultural moment. Take the university population for, for a moment. 64% report feelings of extreme loneliness. 23% are diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. 20% with clinical depression. 30% take psychotropic drugs to manage daily life. And, and then if we just expand this out from the university population to the general population, the country, the suicide rate in this country has climbed 35% in the last two decades. Something is wrong. And anyone hearing these kinds of statistics should feel that sense of urgency as we arrive at Jesus' words. And he says, happy are you, and flourishing are they. Happy who? Flourishing how? Right? It doesn't really matter what you think of Jesus. At this moment, we should sort of just lean in a little bit and, and listen intently. What does he have to say? Uh, I think the sense of urgency around this question of, of human happiness and, and, and human flourishing um, is, is really uh, reflected very, very clearly in the, the uh, record attendance of, of a class taught at Yale by Professor uh, Laurie Santos. Uh, she teaches a class called Psychology and the Good Life, and currently she has about 1,200 students enrolled. That's about 25% of the undergraduate population, making it the most popular class ever in Yale's 319-year history. Now, in this class, what you discover is that happiness is all about subjective, a subjective sense of well-being. So if you have a positive, overall positive emotional state and you have this general sense that life is going pretty well, then you have this sense of subjective well-being and that is happiness and that is the good life. The good news is this subjective sense of well-being is completely accessible by all of us so long as we have the right technique what we have to understand is that our brains are like computers and we just need to understand the glitches in our hardware um, and, and we just need to be able to learn how to hack our brains to be able to rewire them and reprogram them um, for our own benefit. And thankfully, Professor Laurie Santos is there to teach us how to do just that. So the good life equals personal happiness, personal happiness uh, is equal subjective well-being. Subjective well-being equals programming your brain. So this celebrity professor, Laurie Santos, finds herself on the debate stage with a philosopher. Her name is Jennifer Frey. And during the debate, the philosopher asked, asked everyone there, imagine if there was this happiness machine. And, and this happiness machine actually um, produced a simulation that was so close to reality, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And maybe we're just a, a few generations away from, you know, technologically from that. I don't know. We're, we're getting close to that. But she's essentially talking about the matrix, right? So you, you plug into this matrix, plug into this happiness machine, and once you're in there, you get everything you ever wanted. You want security? You've got it. You want love? You've got it. You want uh, professional success? You, you want pleasures of different kinds and varying types? You, you've got it. The only thing, of course, is not none of it's real, but it would seem as though it was real. Um, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. But, but once you're plugged into this machine, you have to withdraw from the human world. You have to withdraw from the material world. And so she asked the obvious question, would you do it? 
would you plug yourself into this machine? And she asked, is this aspirational? <laughs> is this something we should be aspiring to and emulating in our lives? And then the obvious question, is this really human happiness? Is this, is this what we're referring to? And she said the response from her, uh, the, 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 person, the, the uh, celebrity professor, uh, was what really stunned her. Um, because she said this, she recalls this, she said, it is instructive to say the least that Yale's renowned expert on the good life, the one to whom throngs of well-heeled students go for lessons on how to be happier, enthusiastically pronounced that she would, without hesitation, lie motionless and alone inside of this machine for the rest of her days. Of course, this is the inevitable conclusion she must reach, given her theoretical commitments, but it was a stunning admission, nevertheless. This was not a bullet I expected her to bite so easily. I think that's really interesting. That if you are thoroughly committed to a materialist view of the world, you know, everything's just matter and energy and, and mechanisms, right? If you're thoroughly committed to a materialist view of the world, it may actually, given the right circumstances, given the correct opportunity, it may actually lead us to withdraw from the material world. It may be counterintuitive, but we, we commit to a mater thoroughgoing materialist view of the world, it may actually lead us to withdraw, given the right circumstances, from the material world. Well, if the good life uh, is about personal happiness, personal happiness is about subjective well-being, subjective well-being is about reprogramming your brain, then it makes perfect sense to plug yourself into Zuckerberg's meta. But then again, um, you may have noticed this, uh, some people have pointed out, you know what meta means in Hebrew? Anyone know? Meta, yeah, meta means dead. <laughs> meta means dead. You know who else read Hebrew? Jesus read Hebrew, and he knew that meta means dead. And so, in sharp contrast to this escapist, world-hating, because that's what it is, right? It's an escapist, world-hating view of human happiness. Jesus refuses to withdraw into this uh, magical fantasy land and roots us firmly in this world. And that's why, with a moment's reflection, what you'll notice, as you read through carefully, you'll notice that there's a very dark side to Jesus' vision of human flourishing. In fact, I would say that this dark side is actually very much um, intrinsic to Jesus' view for human flourishing, because what he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You hear the dark side to Jesus' words. Jesus is not inviting us to a sanitized world, but it is in a sense calling us to be more sensitive, to be more attuned to, to be more acutely aware of the condition of this world exactly as it is. Where there is a world filled with brokenness, enough to cause us to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. A world filled with pride and arrogance, which will need to be countered with meekness. A world filled with injustice, enough to make us, enough to make us hunger and thirst for righteousness. A world filled with judgment and condemnation, where we will have to learn to show mercy. A world filled with violence, where we will have to make peace 
a world filled with such dissonance and contradictions that a pure heart, a devotion to one thing, is so rare, so unexpected, that people will not know what to do with it, and you'll be persecuted for it, and people will say all kinds of evil against you. And so Jesus' words are startling because he says, well, this is where human flourishing begins, with mourning and meekness and hunger and thirst and violence and persecution and slander. Oh, yes, please, let's have some of that. Not really where I would want to start, but Jesus says, start here. This is where it begins. Um, any of you watch the show Afterlife? It's uh, a Netflix show. I think uh, it's in its third season now. And uh, I think it's, it's, well, it's about a guy who's lost his wife, and he's not coping well. In fact, he's coping very badly with this tragedy. And I think it's in the second season. There's a scene where he's explaining to his friend why he's never really had much of a career. And he said, people always told me, you should try a little bit harder. Put in a bit more effort. You know, you've got the gifts, you've got the talent. If you just apply yourself a bit more, you, know, you, could, you could really make it. You could have a solid career. He said, I never wanted to. He said, I never wanted to because all I ever wanted to do was, if I did that, I'd have to spend more time at the office. And all I ever wanted to do was get home to my wife and squeeze out every last moment, every moment I could with her. And then he pauses for a moment, and he says, you know what? That was exactly the right decision. Clarity. Of course, most of us are not like Ricky Gervais' character who has that clarity before death loomed over him. It's often the other way around, isn't it? It's only when death is looming over us that we suddenly have this moment of clarity and, and, and we, we see things and we want to reorder our lives. Everyone who gets a death diagnosis will rearrange the way they live in some way, shape, or form. It's just the way it happens. You get a death diagnosis, you are going to change something, if not everything, about the way you're living. When, we go, when we're going through loss or pain or, or threatened with loss, maybe it's just things are going badly. So sometimes uh, when, when you're being challenged by life, it, it helps you identify things of value that you wouldn't perhaps have recognized or perhaps you wouldn't normally appreciate with the same kind of intensity. But suddenly, you have clarity. And so Jesus wants us to have that kind of clarity, the kind of clarity that will bring that sort of top to bottom, inside out, reordering of our lives. And so one of the things I, I want us to consider is how do we get that kind of clarity? How, how do we get the kind of clarity Jesus is calling us to? How do we cultivate that in our lives, that, the, the kind of posture that Jesus talks about? Every single one of us works very, very hard at cultivating our own advancement and our own successes, however you are measuring that success, money, status, education, social circles, whatever, right? Job satisfaction. We work hard to cultivate our own success. What if we took the same kind of intensity that we pour into cultivating our own advancement, our own success, and we actually pour that same kind of focus and intensity to nurturing and cultivating these beatitudes, these this kind of posture, this clarity that Jesus is describing here. See, I can't say, for example, I am amongst the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
I am meek. Blessed are the meek. I am really hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But I can't really say that I'm in that category or have that perspective of clarity when every morning I get up and I put on my clothes, my t-shirt, sweater because it's cold, trousers, jacket to go out. I grab a banana, some coffee for breakfast, and every single decision I've made is, I, is basically connected to all the clothes I've put on, the food I'm, I'm grabbing, it's all been made by slaves. It's all been made by slaves. Um, this is St. John's College. It just happened to be the college I was assigned to uh, through my studies at, at the University of Durham. And this is where some years ago, reflecting on this question, uh, some decades ago actually, reflecting on this question, you know, what, what does it, what does it mean to be meek and, and amongst the poor in spirit and to, be, and to actually be um, hungering and thirsting for righteousness? What does that mean? And, and they started to talk about how this would affect these practical decisions of everyday life. And, and it, it, it came about, they started talking about fair trade. And, and fair trade is this idea that you, you, don't, you don't have to have slaves on farms and factories in order to live the way we, we What we could do is actually pay people a living wage so that they don't have to have their kids working in the factory with them, but they can send them to school. And some of the, the profits of that business can actually get poured back into those same communities. And so they came up with this um, system where they would have a third party go in and, and check be invited in to check on the conditions in the factories and the farms and, and to, they came up with the criteria that these different businesses had to meet and then you would get this sort of fair trade label and so uh, you've, you've probably seen this uh, around and it's largely through the influence of their work that now segments of the garment industry have started to make commitments to have transparency have you noticed that some of them are talking about transparency about their their supply chain um, and they're they're paying a, some of them a living wage imagine that um, billionaire venture capitalist Chamath Paliaptia uh, recently, uh, this has been discussed quite a bit recently, on, you may have heard this on the podcast, he said, every time I say that I care about the Uyghurs, I'm really just lying if I don't really care. He's talking about the persecuted minority group in Western China. Um, and so I'd, I'd rather not lie to you and tell you the truth. It's not a priority to me. Nobody cares about what's happening to the Uyghurs, okay? Of all the things that I care about, it's below my line. He says, what I really care about is things like the supply chain issue. Of course, it is a supply chain issue because these are people being turned into slaves to make products for us at the other end of the supply chain. But I can, can so, so it's really easy though, of course, to judge someone like that for saying something like that, really easy. But the truth is his ugly truth is so often, more often than I would care to admit, our ugly truth. Who really cares about some obscure Turkic group in Western China? Of course, it doesn't have to be. We do have a choice. Because what we can do is we can be standing in Whole Foods or the, the bodega and we can be looking at the coffee and the tea and the bananas and the sugar and we can go, well, where did this come from? And we can look for, for those, those labels, right? And we can say, where did this come from? Is it made by slaves? And, and, and I can stand in the clothing store and I can look at the, the label and see where it was made. Or better still, why don't you do, as you're standing in the clothing store, Google it. Look, look it up and see what their policy is, right? Look, see if they've got a policy. If they haven't got a policy, then, then you, you probably know what that means. But what is their policy? What are they working, are they, are they work, making any efforts to, to change what goes on in their supply chain? 
Right? Well, is there any transparency? See, so because, because, because you don't want your first 20 minutes of your day as you get dressed and grab breakfast, <laughs> just the first 20 minutes, to, to be filled with that, that kind of thing. Um, you see, these are the, this is why I cho chose this as our, as our example, because these are the decisions that we make every day, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, and they can become a way of cultivating the clarity that Jesus is talking about. You see, it's not a feeling or an abstract concept. Blessed are those who mourn. For the factory workers, and the farm slaves. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not, am I feeling, am I feeling hunger, enough hunger and thirst for righteousness? No, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness on behalf of the Uyghurs. Paradoxically, once we have this clarity about the way the world actually is, Jesus asks us to then look beyond the way the world it is. Right, so we have this clarity, here's how we see clearly, this is the way the world is. I'm not going to pretend when I get my breakfast and I get dressed in the morning that it's some other way. This is what is going on. I have clarity about the way the world is. And then Jesus asks us to look beyond the way the world is to the transcendent God. Because flourishing in Jesus' vision is not about hacking your computer brain or drugging yourself or engaging in other forms of self-manipulation but about orienting ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings, our desires toward what is truly good and just and beautiful. The philosopher I mentioned earlier on, uh, Jennifer Frey, she puts it like this. She says, flourishing cannot take place in a solipsistic, self-referential way. There has to be a self-transcendent dimension. We have to make contact with the reality outside ourselves that we can really and truly affirm as good. I love that, just that first bit. Flourishing cannot take place in a solipsistic, self-referential way. My goodness, if we could just grasp that, our cultural context, our generation, could you just grasp that? Uh, that would be transformative. And that's the clarity Jesus is calling us to have. And so he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' vision is not about, for human flourishing, it's not about entering the prison of the self, which is what it becomes, withdrawing from each other and withdrawing from life itself into the mechanisms of our brain, nor is it an escape from some, to some other, escape to some other heavenly realm. It's neither of those things. Instead, what Jesus is doing here, and this is the amazing picture that, he, that we have, is he's pulling heaven and earth, these, these two disparate, seemingly disparate realities which have nothing to do with each other, and he's pulling heaven and earth together. And he intends to join heaven and earth with God's comfort. He will join heaven and earth with God's mercy. He will join heaven and earth with God's abundance. He will join heaven and earth with God's peace. 
We are being invited here at the beginning of Jesus' sermon to participate in this project, pulling these two disparate worlds, two disparate realities together. You know, one of the disciples who was there that day is known as John, the Apostle John, and decades later, he finds himself sitting on the island of Patmos. And he's a prisoner, he's a prison island, and he has this vision. And in that vision, what he sees, he sees a city, and, it, and it's a beautiful, beautiful city, and it's a new Jerusalem, and it's coming down from heaven to earth. This, this picture of a new city coming from heaven to earth. And he starts to describe this event as a sort of a, a marriage. He, he describes it as a marriage between heaven and earth. And so Jesus, standing on that mount but looking forward to that day, says, this is a force of nature. It's like gravity. We can fight it, but we can't stop it. Heaven and earth are meant for each other. So work with me to join heaven and earth together today because this is where human flourishing, your flourishing and my flourishing, begin. Let us pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us clarity. We pray that you would give us this clarity and, and that we would work hard to nurture that posture in ourselves of mourning and meekness and the hunger and thirst, open to the reality of violence and persecution and slander in this world. And with that clarity, we pray that we would join you in bringing heaven and earth together with your mercy, your peace, your abundance. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.